Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you all very much for coming. Um, my name is James McDougall. I'm a fellow and tutor in history at Trinity College, and uh, on behalf of Trinity, which is the college that hosts uh, the visiting professorship in historiography, I'm very uh, glad to welcome you to uh, tonight's lecture. Uh, the Humanitas Programme, as you probably know, is a series of visiting professorships uh, established at Oxford and Cambridge uh, in the uh, humanities, uh, the arts, and the social sciences. Um, and this particular chair is uh, sponsored by the Blavatnik Family Foundation and run uh, in conjunction with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, to both of which institutions are very grateful for their sponsorship and their help uh, financially and organisationally in making these events happen. This is actually the third uh, event uh, of Professor Bailey's tenure of the chair. There were two uh, events uh, last week, a graduate uh, conference on Friday and a uh, workshop on Thursday. This is the first public lecture uh, that we've had in the series, and there'll be another one tomorrow evening uh, at 4.15 in the Radcliffe Humanities building on the Stock Road uh, uh, to complete the programme. There is a, uh, an error for which I have to apologise if you've looked at the website. You might have been lured in by the tantalising promise of the drinks reception after the lecture to which everyone was welcome. Uh, I have, I'm very sorry to have to inform you that that was a mistake and there is in fact no such thing. Uh, <laughs> anyone who wants to leave now, there's still another to Start. Uh, but I'm sure you won't want to. Um, this evening's uh, lecturer and our visiting professor in historiography for this year is Professor Christopher Bailey, who came up to uh, Balliol some time ago uh, to uh, read history and completed his uh, DPhil in 1970, which was later published as The Local Roots of Indian Politics, Allahabad, 1880 to 1921, uh, in 1975 by the Clarendon Press. Uh, a very uh, local uh, study, but which portended uh, very global interventions uh, to come. And it's very, uh, a great pleasure for us to welcome Professor Bailey, as it were, home to his locality uh, to talk about things uh, very global. Uh, Professor Bailey's uh, extraordinarily distinguished career uh, moved through a series of uh, landmark publications, beginning with uh, more local and rural, uh, local and, and regional studies, Rulers, Townsmen and Bazaars, North Indian Society in the Age of British Expansion in 1983, but now in its third edition. And then a series of landmark studies, Empire and Information in 1996, a book still very much being discussed, I and mean, being discussed at one of those conferences last week, The Origins of Nationalism in South Asia, Patriotism and Ethical Government in the Making of Modern India, both published in the late 1990s. And at the same time as working on South Asia, Professor Bailey moved into British imperial history, and also into comparative uh, imperial history, writing comparative essays on South Asia and Indonesia. Then uh, one of his first big books, Imperial Meridian, The British Empire and the World in 1989, and moving from imperial to global history, bringing together themes uh, which I think he'll be speaking to us about. In 2004, rather astonishingly, he managed to publish two enormous uh, books, Forgotten Armies, The Fall of British Asia, 1941 to 1945, and at the same time, the book that most Oxford undergraduates know him for, the Birth of the Modern World, 1780 to 1914, Global Connections and Comparisons. That was a volume in Blackwell's History of the World series, but even in that very distinguished company, it was a remarkably uh, standout volume. As the Sunday Times put it, 
It was a truly global history, a work of jaw-dropping erudition that ranges effortlessly across the continents. Flesz Bailey has since written on Indian liberalism, on Mazzini and the globalization of democratic nationalism. He's edited volumes on historians and development policy and on tributary empires in global history. He's a fellow of the British Academy and was knighted in 2007. The Times Literary Supplement wrote of the birth of the modern world that it was, quote, as much about the writing of history as about that history itself. Uh, and it's for that reason that we're delighted to have him here as our visiting professor in historiography to think about global and imperial history and the title Worlds of Thought, Empires, India and Islam. His lecture will be followed by a response uh, from uh, Dr. Faisal Devji, who is a reader in uh, Indian history at uh, St. Anthony's College. Uh, and I'm now going to hand over uh, straight to Professor Bailey, who's going to talk to us about the challenges to Eurocentric history, Marshall G.S. Hodgson and his legacy. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, James, for your very nice introduction. And I must say, it's a huge honour for me to have been elected to the Humanitas Visiting Professorship in Historiography, doubly so because, as he said, Oxford is my alma mater. <clears throat> and it's particularly poignant for me to come here precisely 50 years after I arrived at the university as an undergraduate. And I have to thank the Balabatic uh, Family Foundation the Weidenfeld family and the Humanitas Trust for their generosity. And I'm very grateful to Pro Professor Harris, to James McDougall, uh, Dr. Davey, and many others for the warm welcome they've given me. And Trinity College has been a, a marvelous home from home. Now, one of the most recent areas of intellectual growth in historiography has been world history, global history, transregional history. I won't bore you with the semantics, but there's a lot of argument about that. And Marshall G.S. Hodgson, who died in 1968, was one of the founding figures in the writing of modern world history and a critical influence on the development of the Western understanding of Islam. He was what might be called a counter-Orientalist because he used the tools of Oriental scholarship to create a new and more favorable understanding of the Muslim world. Unlike his now more celebrated successor, Edward Said, he worked directly on the cultural heritage of Islam, while Said could broadly to be said to be an intellectual historian of Europe. Yet Edmund Burke III, one of Hodgson's greatest admirers and the editor of his posthumous collection of essays, Rethinking World History, writes of the venture of Islam, Hodgson's major work, that in some respects it was a splendid anachronism, an idealist approach to a subject which has also to be understood, or mainly understood, through a consideration of demographic, economic, and social change. So the first section of this lecture attempts to resolve the paradox by setting Hodgson's thought in the context of world and American historiography during the 19th and early 20th centuries. It goes on to assess the strengths and weaknesses of Hodgson's approach in terms of more recent scholarship. And I end by considering how recent challenges to Eurocentric history have evolved from and also differed from Hodgson's work. So placing Hodgson in or ahead of his time. Marshall Hodgson's work can be understood at two interlinked levels. On one level, he emerged out of a specific historical and anthropological tradition which had developed at the University of Chicago in the 1940s and 50s. This tradition, overseen by the Committee on Social Thought, which Hodgson once headed, 
looked for intellectual inspiration to the great books of continental Europe, especially Germany, because Chicago remained in part a German city. The tradition was broadly dismissive of what could be seen as Anglo-Saxon empiricism. It promoted an understanding of culture, kultur, which derived from the anthropology of Franz Boas, amongst others. This was a relativistic form of thought which rejected the historicism and progressivism seen, for instance, in Spencer, Mill, and the neo-Darwinists. The desire to understand world cultures in their own terms was later developed in the work of Hodgson's anthropological contemporaries and younger colleagues, notably Milton Singer on India, Robert Redfield on Latin America, Clifford Geertz on Indonesia, and, his, and in his later work at least, Bernard S. Cohn on India and the British. Hodgson's intellectual sensibility was also influenced, as Burke argues, by his personal Quaker beliefs and cranky obsessions, that's Burke's word, not mine, which included vegetarianism, a concern with terminology, and one could add a vaunting geographical vision. Hodgson was also a fitness fanatic who died very young because he insisted on running marathons in the summer heat of Chicago. The immediate context for this work in the 1950s and 60s was decolonization and the move of American institution from Christian missionary work to secular goals, the promotion of education, development, and stability in the context of the Cold War. The Ford Foundation and Rockefeller Foundation sent young academics, including several from Chicago, to what was then called the Third World, enhancing the studies of programs in US universities. The Congress for Cultural Freedom had more immediate political aims in countering communist influence. Hodgson himself had visited the Middle East and India in his early years, but there's little evidence in his writing of direct political commitment. Nevertheless, I think his global vision has to be seen in context. In a sense, he substituted the idea of Islam and the Islamicate world for the much more negative trope of the third world, which of course was dominant at that period. At a wider level, these Chicago intellectuals drew on and transformed into a particularly American form of thought the works of a number of continental European writers on Islam and world history. While Hegel, for instance, had held that India was an immature civilization distorted by dreamy Hindu aesthetics, he had viewed early Islamic monotheism much more favorably as one stage in the march of the spirit of freedom. Only later did uh, Islam, according to Hegel, retreat into oriental ease and repose, with the result that the only truly free person in Muslim societies was the king. Arguably, one can trace a late version of this understanding of Islam as the embodiment of the spirit of freedom in Hodgson's own work. Hodgson, however, insisted that Islam's retreat didn't truly occur until the 18th century. By 1914, other, more positive and comparative views of Islam and Asia had come to the fore, especially in continental European scholarship. These ranged from Nietzsche's characterization of the prophet as hero, anticipated, of course, by Thomas Carlyle, to Weber's understanding of the relationship between religion and rationalization in world contexts. Hodgson wrote relatively little on the economy of either Europe or the Islamic world, but his version of religion and the rise of capitalism might have been something like religion and the persistence of the Islamicate Ocumin. As Burke again notes, Louis Massillon, the French Arabist, and the Austrian-American Islamist Gustav von Grunebaum 
were particularly influential on the development of Hodgson's thought. What were the resonances of these thinkers for him? Louis Massignon can be understood in the context of French colonialism in Algeria. Experience of travel and colonial service was always critical in widening the view of European scholars. Massignon had relations amongst colonial officials in Algeria, which he visited in 1901-2, following his graduation from the Lycée Louis-le-Grand in Paris. Later, during a visit to Mesopotamia in 1907, he emerged from a dangerous situation in Baghdad as a reconvert to Catholic Christianity, but still influenced by Islamic humanism. His understanding of both Christianity and Islam was deeply mystical. Belief followed from, I quote, the visitation of a stranger, meaning God, to the individual spirit. As a Christian mystic in a Muslim context, he was also influenced by the French-Algerian hermit, Charles de Foucault, who had become a kind of St. Francis to the Touareg tribes of North Africa. Massillon's La Passion de la Loge, dealing with the great 11th century mystical scholar, brought these two religious strains together. Massillon's fixation with mysticism was later criticized by Edward Said, who, while generally exonerating him from the Saidian version of Orientalism, believed that Massillon had marginalized the legalistic and social dimension of Islam. Yet this obsession was what gave Massillon a unique empathy with the Muslim world in general. Apart from Massillon's scholarly range and imagination, his attraction for Hodgson lay in his Christian religious commitment and his deep, deep love of Sufi mystical traditions within Islam. It is true, of course, that Hodgson himself was aware of and ambivalent about the intellectual dangers of reading Islam out of Christianity or vice versa. Yet his own Quaker Christianity made him favorable to what he saw as the socially equalizing aspects and emphasis on personal conscience, very important word for him, in both original Christianity, reflected in Quakerism, and also the moral equality preached by the prophet Muhammad. Still, the compassion of the Sufi provided a key entree for Hodgson into the world of a universalistic humanism which he imagined. A secondary feature linking Massillon and Hodgson was their determination to put Persian thought and literature at the center of their studies of the Islamic world. Mansur al-Halaj himself was born in the province of Fars in Persia, and his family had originally been Zoroastrians. Yet an, it is important to be aware of the differences between the sensibility of Hodgson and Massillon. As I stated, Hodgson had flourished in a university which was acutely conscious of the rising power of the United States in the world and a teaching tradition designed to equip the citizens of the new superpower with regional knowledge and sympathy with oppressed peoples. Hodgson was also aware, in his later years at least, of the force of Islamic revival, which was reflected in the rise of the economic power of the oil-rich Arabs, the foundation of Pakistan, the influence of the Muslim Brotherhood, and the like. The last chapters of the third volume of The Venture of Islam record his ambivalence about, but also his admiration of, these new forces. By contrast, Massignon, who was considerably older than Hodgson, and even more devoted to mysticism than he was, stuck and struck a note of nostalgia and regret for the decline of classical Islam in his works. History for Massillon was an essential component of, I quote, the art of compassion. The collection L'Islam et l'Occident, 1947, 
which he edited with Sheikh Al-Razak of the Al-Azam Muslim University in Cairo and others, begins with an essay by Jean Ballard, which deplored the decline of both Islam and also the West, the latter corrupted by fascism, communism, and genocidal war. Massillon himself, writing after a visit to Herat and Afghanistan, pictured Islam crushed between a declining British Empire to the south and aggressive communism to the north. Worse still was the choc moral des techniques européennes, perhaps a forerunner of Hodgson's dismissive idea of Western technicalism, meaning an overemphasis on material development. Massillon awaited the renaissance of classicism of the Arabs, which would put Islam at the top of world civilizations once again. But this was still wanting in the 1940s, just as Catholic Christianity was embattled in his native France. Despite this subtle difference in sensibilities, however, there's no doubting the influence of Massillon and his French co-workers on Hodgson. For instance, the essay by Émile Dermigan, L'Islam et l'Occident, which is called uh, Témoignage d'Islam, uh, marks Islam out as a nation intermédiaire, helping to link Europe, East Asia, and Black Africa. And this also is a clear precursor to Hodgson's idea of an Afro-Eurasian ecumen, an assault on the geographical version of Eurocentrism. The stance of a second figure, Gustav von Grunebaum, a direct colleague of Hodgson as a professor of Arabic in Chicago, was attracted, attractive to Hodgson for similar reasons. A refugee from the cosmopolitan world of the late Austro-Hungarian Empire, von Grunebaum left Europe as it was engulfed by the Nazis. He was convinced of, quote, the intellectual obligation resting on the Western student of Islam to interpret it humanely to his own society for its particular moral worth. This was a position which Hodgson warmly endorsed, though von Grunebaum's passion was to explain this worth through a detailed textual study of Arabic poetry. His medieval Islam achieved a similar synthetic scope to Hodgson's, though for a more limited time period, as it attempted to reveal the universal humanity of Islamic civilization through Arabic literature. Von Grunebaum and the South Asian scholar Azid Ahmed worked together on the Muslims of India and Pakistan during Hodgson's final years. Similarly, Wilfred Cantwell Smith, a Canadian scholar who taught to, in North Indian Christian institutions and had written Modern Islam in India, also knew Hodgson after his return to teach at Harvard in the 1950s. Smith had made a transition from an early Marxist anti-imperialist stance to a later Christian engagement with Islam. It seems likely that this shift to the East provided one context for Hodgson's own re-engagement with South Asian historiography, which came quite late in his life and informs the final chapters of Volume 3 of The Venture. Finally, although he didn't read Russian, Hodgson took note of the work of Russian and Soviet Islamists who had also worked to shift historians' attention to the East and saw Islam as leveling almost communistic faith. This aspect of his reading also made it easier for him to differentiate within the Islamicate world, though it didn't spur him to disaggregate the very notion of Europe itself, as it might have done. Few British scholars of Islam, 
or for that matter Ivy League American scholars, appear either as colleagues of Hodgson or in his footnotes. One of the few who did was Hamilton Gibb, another student of Arabic literature and society who wrote Mohammedanism, an historical survey, in 1949. Hodgson would have approved Gibb's point of religious departure as a Scottish Protestant who admired the democratic spirit of Islam, but he would have objected to other aspects of his writing which was marked by late colonial ideologies in a way which Hodgson's was not. Gibb wrote in a social Darwinist tradition that saw civilizations rise and fall like living organisms. He asserted the superiority of Christianity to Islam in a way that Hodgson never did. Unlike Massillon, Hodgson, Gibb tended to marginalize Sufism, Shiism, and even Arabic scientific rationality. Finally, Gibb and his co-worker, Bowen, believed that many of the most creative features of early modern Islam were consequences of the influence of convert Muslim servants of the Ottoman regime who had originated in Christian Eastern Europe. This reflected a subtle version of that same Eurocentrism, which was Hodgson's main target throughout his life. So Hodgson's context in transnational historiography. Reading Hodgson's collected essays, one might get the impression that he was one of the few voices crying out in the wilderness against the disparagement of Islam and Eurocentric versions of world history. In fact, the situation was much more complex. From the middle of the 19th century, there were many historians and social commentators who took issue with the organicism and progressive historicism which saw Europe emerging from classical antiquity through the Renaissance to stand at the pinnacle of human achievement. This historiography, as in Hodgson's case, was often tinged with religious sentiment. In particular, many such writers, not only on Islam, but also in India and China, displayed what I've called elsewhere a redemptive turn of mind, that's to say they believed that Asia and Africa's contemporary humiliations could be redeemed by finding and emphasizing those aspects of its religion and culture which had once put them at the pole of human achievement. Yet it was not only Asian who Asians who needed to be redeemed, or Middle East people, for Western imperialism had wrought disaster across the world and could only be atoned for by humility, scholarship and education. True, the dominant liberal imperialists of the late Victorian era despised Islamic society and the Ottoman Empire in particular, or argued that their social and political structures were primitive. This theme was particularly blatant in the writing of Henry Maine, James Rice, and of course William Gladstone himself. Hodgson later dismissed Arnold Toynbee, not only because of his organicism and the alleged naivety of the understanding of the nature of civilization in his work, but also because he fell squarely into the Bryce tradition of writing off Islam as tyrannical and the Ottoman government as a mere assemblage of tribute takers, at least in the later period. But even in Britain, there was another radical liberal school which viewed Islam and Asian societies in a more positive light. Thomas W. Arnold, for instance, deprecated the views of William Muir and other colonial officials who derided Islam as a religion of blood and conquest, cemented, I quote, by the love of rapine and the lust of spoil. Arnold, who taught at the modernist Anglo-Mohammedan college at Aligarh in North India, stressed the peaceful expansion of the faith and its appeal to slaves and the underprivileged. 
He protested against the prejudice and unfairness of ignoring the missionary work of Islam, anticipating Hodgson himself. Like Hodgson, he was attracted to the hermetic religious life, translating the little flowers of St. Francis. Again, like the later Chicago school, he was aware of the work done by French, German and Dutch scholars, pointing in particular to the work of the Paris journal Revue du Monde Musulmane, which took an enlightened view of the political stirrings in the Muslim world after 1900, such as the Persian Revolution of 1905. Another British scholar, E.G. Brown, took a similar benign view of Iran's emergence from monarchical despotism, again drawing on contemporary French work. Later, in the 1930s, Joseph Needham, a pupil of Brown, Anglican Christian and historian of science, wrote of the origin of Western knowledge in China and envisioned history as a story of the survival, not of the fittest, but of the most altruistic. Hodgson himself sought to reorientate world history away from its Western axis by treating Europe as a cape or promontory on the margins of Afro-Eurasian oikumene. Yet this effort had begun nearly a century before in India, a country which is more often alluded to in passing rather than discussed in Hodgson's early essays on global history. In the 1820s, Ramohan Roy and Ram Raz had both critiqued the European view that representative government had only emerged in Greece, citing the ancient Indian deliberative body, the Panchayat. Ramraz also refuted the view that Indian architecture was derived from Greek and Egyptian exemplars. Fifty years later, K.T. Tilang demolished the notion that the great Hindu epic, the Ramayana, was derivative of the Greek myths. By 1900, Urbindo Ghosh and the young Mahatma Gandhi were asserting that European civilization was morally inferior to those of Asia, which excelled only in what Hodgson later called technicalism. Okakura, Kakuza's Ideals of the East, 1904, sparked up a whole series of works on the superiority of Asian art and culture. Notable here was the Anenda Kentish Kumaraswamy, the Anglo-Selenese art historian who worked in Princeton University for much of Hodgson's lifetime. In fact, it's quite puzzling that at least in his world history essays and the venture, Hodgson paid so little attention to non-European writers who after the 1930s and 40s had flooded English and French literature with books and articles attempting to rectify the Eurocentric bias he deplored. His focus, of course, continued to be on Islamic society in these general essays, but even in West Asia and North Africa, a figure such as Salama Musa, the Coptic essayist and violent critique of British dominion in his country, was an anti-Orientalist who anticipated Edward Said both in rhetoric and in argument. In West Africa again, Dr. J.B. Dunker attacked the distorting effects of the modern West, which had betrayed its original Christian ideals. Many of these authors, both European and Asian, could be seen as religious reformers and even mystics in their different traditions. Not all of them were any way modernizers. Indeed, many of them deeply deplored technicalization, falling back on ideas of the simple morality of the East, as in the case of Gandhi or Kakuzo. Others, such as T. Lawrence, Massillon and de Foucault, were entranced not only by, not by the modernism of the Tanzimat, the Ottoman later Turkish reformers, 
but the simple life of the Bedou and gloried in young male Arab manhood. The particularly upfront version of this homoerotic religiosity in the Indian case was Edward Carpenter, a gay radical who supported Indian nationalism and believed that the lingam, stylized representations of male sexual organs found in some Hindu temples were a premonition of worldwide sexual liberation. So Hodgson's posthumous influence, or lack of it. Setting Hodgson's work in its period, one of continuing Western dominance and late idealist thought, makes it clear why discussion of his work dwindled in quality and quantity within a few years of his death. The profession turned sh away sharply from the idealism of Massillon. Even Hodgson's more restrained call to write public history seemed at odds with the academic hyper-professionalism which ensued. In English language historiography, Herbert Butterfield was perhaps the last major writer to make his Christian religious confession so clear in his work. Albert Hurani wrote luminously about Arabic thought, but the tone of Islamic historiography in Britain was captured by the two-volume Cambridge History of Islam, 1971, a compilation of detailed narratives largely lacking in reflection or argument. The decline of idealism, however, combined with what Hodgson might well have considered for a form of historian's technicalism, was the dominant feature. Even the disagreements with William McNeill on the timing of the Western breakout from the Okimine uh, seemed marginal compared with a turn towards the history of demography, capitalism, and economic change, which overtook the field of world history after 1970. The background of this shift can be found in two bodies of writing. First, there was the rearmament of Marxism in continental Europe and Britain, signaled by the appearance of work by the late Eric Hobsbawm, André Gunder Frank, Perry Anderson, and more recently, Hart and Negri. All these reflected a sophisticated superstructural interpretation of world history, yet paid considerably more attention to factors and modes of production than Hodgson had ever done. In the USA, Emmanuel Wallerstein helped inaugurate world systems theory. This went beyond the earlier modernization theory and arose out of a desire to explain the huge persisting economic inequalities between the North and the South. While re-emphasizing the impact of European colonialism and the development of underdevelopment, it tended, tended to bundle the Islamic regions back into a geographical prison reminiscent of the third world of the Cold War years. Parallel with this work was a range of publication which could be classified as non-Marxist materialist in character. Here, the looming figure was, of course, Fernand Brodel, who finally dispelled the French version of idealist historiography represented by Massignon and propelled the Annales School to the center of historical scholarship. Brodel's view of Islam emerges most clearly in his later volume, The History of Civilizations. In French, the original title was Grammaire des Civilisations, which is revealing. Brodel expressed himself uninterested in, I quote, the event, and only partially interested in the conjuncture. His structural interpretation ascended from geography through sociology and economics to social psychology, the nearest thing to intellectual culture in his canon, though itself a weak form of knowledge in his view. Islam, again in his view, lagged two centuries behind the West, even in the 16th and 17th centuries. Its towns had arisen early, but 
it had failed to conquer the countryside as Europe had done. Further, in a latter-day recapitulation of Hegel, Islam failed to keep pace with Europe because it had not managed to privilege reason over religion. Apparently, religion was the problem for all non-European civilizations, bar a few 12th century Arab philosophers and Chinese sophists, and those were his words. Brodel's so-called total history remained quite Eurocentric, even though his emphasis on the Mediterranean successfully qualified the notion of Europe itself. Brodel's approach, in some ways a premonition of Samuel Huntingdon's Clash of Cultures, fails to acknowledge the long struggle by Arabic philosophers through to Muhammad Abdu and Rashid Rida in the 19th century to adjust reason to Sharia, God's law, nor the fact that they've often been quite successful in this venture, more so in some cases than their Christian contemporaries. Even from a materialist viewpoint, Europe's conquests of the Americas and its propensity for internal warfare seem to present a better interpretation for Europe's divergence and its two-century predominance, now ending, of course, than this old dichotomy. Here, Hodgson's work, which emphasized the event, in this case, Muhammad's teaching, belief, ideology, and equality, retains its value. Obviously, neither Brodel's structuralism nor Hodgson's idealism can give a complete interpretation of the decline and resurgence of Islam today. But Hodgson's value is clear in an era when easy historiographical materialism and Eurocentrism remain pervasive, if increasingly dented by the rise of the bricks and the civets. A direct intellectual descendant of Brodel was K.N. Choudhury, who wrote World History and the History of the Islamicate World from the bottom up, but avoided Eurocentrism. It's striking that Choudhury's most general work, Asia Before Europe, 1990, and one which dwells on temporality in the geography of a large part of Afro-Eurasia, hardly mentions Hodgson, not a single footnote, I think, in the text or bibliography. This is in sharp contrast to Chaudhry's near deification of Brodel and excursions into set theory and linguistic philosophy. Hodgson is also largely absent in Chris Wickham's excellent recent study, Framing the Early Middle Ages, which brings together the Islamic and Christian Mediterranean worlds, as Hodgson had done in volume two of the venture, though concentrating on aristocracies, peasantries, rural settlement and exchange. The works published and edited by A.G. Hopkins on the history of globalization, to which I have also contributed, once again generally neglect Hodgson. Hopkins and his contributors emphasize trade and exchange, and insofar as they consider the Islamic world, it's almost exclusively as an economic area. More recently, several historians have turned to the issue which Hodgson debated with McNeil, the tipping point when Europe, in inverted commas as well, achieved its key economic and political advantage over the rest of the world. Kenneth Pomerantz wrote of the great divergence between Europe and China, dating it very late towards the end of the 18th century, when Britain finally achieved maritime dominance and the beginnings of industrialization. Arbin Wong wrote China Transformed, The Limits of European Experience. His new book, Before and Beyond Divergence, The Politics of Economic Change in China and Europe, Harvard University Press, 2011, co-authored co with Jean-Laurent Rosenthal, extends the analysis of comparative European and Chinese political economy. The strength of this work is its very careful approach 
to comparative methodology, rather than arguing that China and Europe took fundamentally different paths to modernity and industrialization, Bing Wang and Rosenthal illustrate a good deal of commonality between aspects of Chinese political economy and its European counterpart. In doing so, they emphasize comparisons of scale and the way in which relatively small differences, for instance in the form of property rights, had significant longer-term consequences through to the present. What's most impressive about this work is the fact that it refuses to make grandiose historical claims about Chinese exceptionalism or conversely simply absorb European into Chinese historical paradigms or vice versa. Finally, Prasannan Partisadati has brought India back into the debate about the, quotes, expansion of Europe in his Why Europe Grew Rich and Asia Did Not. Here again, these works, uh, in these works, Hodgson's own legacy is missing while what he called technicalism receives consistent emphasis. So is Hodgson's writing an anachronism? I'm struck by the fact that while he rarely appears in footnotes, so many Asian and world historians I've spoken to in the last year or two continue to express admiration for him and urge their students to read him. So I want to go into a little more of the critique of Hodgson and then move on to why he's important to us today. So, a closer examination of Hodgson's own arguments about modernity, Islam, and world history. Three questions are central. When should we now date the, quotes rise of the West, the issue mentioned above? What work does the concept of technicalism do for Hodgson and for us? Finally, is there still any merit in Hodgson's idealist, intellectual, religious conception of the three centuries-long decline of Islam and the non-European world? It's important to state here that critiquing Eurocentrism in history doesn't require us to underplay the profound significance of the centuries of European world domination. What we need to do is to put it into a global context, but how? Hodgson's vigorous disagreement with McNeil over the timing of the European breakout seems to reflect some of his key assumptions. In the first place, Hodgson emphasized the continuing spread of Islam as the predominant agrarian civilization well into the 17th century, highlighting the Ottomans' advance into the Mediterranean and the Balkans, or the Mughals into Hindu India. MacNeil had committed a disastrous error, Hodgson said, in arguing for the great importance of the Portuguese voyages across the Atlantic and round the Cape of Good Hope, and emphasizing 1500 as the turning point in world history. These expeditions were merely one venture within an essentially agrarian at level historical complex. In addition, the Renaissance, constantly lauded by European scholars, couldn't easily be linked to technicalistic advances of Western nations, which only really began in the late 17th or even 18th century. So the classic teleology of European expansion, linking the fall of Constantinople, the diffusion of Greek knowledge, the Renaissance and the voyages of discovery displayed a systematic Westernist bias in Hodgson's view. Hodgson was probably right that the consequences of Vasco da Gama's circumnavigation of Africa took decades to reveal themselves and that during the 16th century, the Portuguese remained little more than the kafirs of Asia in Sanjay Subramanian's words. The broader importance of the westward expansion of the Iberian empires, signaled by the voyages of Columbus and his successors, shouldn't be underestimated, however. 
the massive die-off of the Amerindian peoples, well entrained by the middle of the 16th century, distorted global demography for 300 years. The discovery and exploitation of the silver of Mexico of Peru fundamentally changed the balance of global commercial power. Indeed, historians of the Ottoman world have shown how empire, and by the extension other Islamicate gunpowder empires, quite rapidly suffered inflation as a consequence of the silver flow, but failed to benefit as much as the Western Europeans did from the broader expansion of world trade. The more recent Asian-centric debate about the timing of Europe's rise, which Hodgson anticipated, has also relatively downplayed these Atlantic conquests, the rise of plantation slavery, and the techniques of governance and exploitation which European de Europeans developed in the New World. Pomerantz, for instance, certainly acknowledges the importance of the Americas as a huge storeroom of resources which Europeans could plunder. But Jesuit and Dominican ethnology, the surprisingly early development of closely governed imperial provinces in the Spanish New World, and above all the violent expansion of amphibious warfare between medium-sized European powers to the rest of the world, surely constituted an epochal change which was well entrained by 1600. In this sense, MacNeill was right about the significance of the voyages of Columbus and Vasco da Gama, no longer a mere promontory or cape of Hodgson's Afro-Eurasian oikumene, Europe had discovered a vast new hinterland, and we were discussing this at the student presentations last week. Hodgson's discussion of what he calls the Great Transformation in the Venture, Volume 3, the second key argument, is particularly general and lacking in temporal specificity, except when it comes to the generation of 1789. This is understandable in view of the fact that most of it was abstracted from his notes and drafts after his death. We should also remember that Hodgson's work arose from a regionally differentiated system of teaching at Chicago, and that his colleagues ran detailed classes on European history with which he was not inclined to overlap. But we can still ask the question, what work does the concept of technicalization do for Hodgson, and how far can we use it? As Edmund Burke III notes, there is a tension between Hodgson's acknowledgement that this process, which distinguished our world from its agrarian precursors, began in Northwestern Europe, and his insistence that technicalization was a global change. To some degree, however, more recent scholarship may help to resolve this tension. Jan de Vries' argument that the er at early modern Europe had already undergone significant industrious revolutions, characterized by more direct and rationalized forms of labor control and production, can be extended to other parts of the world. Indian silk and cotton textile industries, or Chinese porcelain production, for instance, seem to have gone through periods of concentration with more directed use of capital and labor in the 17th and 18th centuries. Much of this enhanced production was directed to the internal market, though the European joint stock companies were later beneficiaries. The notion of industrial revolutions also moves agency away from the supposed once and for all breakthrough of British industrialization, an argument of which Hodgson was very suspicious. To this extent, Hodgson's emphasis on the global nature of technicalization was clever. At the same time, though, he unduly downplays the significance of the new relationships involving in Europe between the state, capital, and science in the late 17th and 18th centuries. 
even before British industrialization, a phase of, phase of proto-industrialization and knowledge accumulation developing out of the earlier industrious revolutions had brought about a great leap forward in Northern Europe. New techniques of map making, astronomy and gunnery arising out of the need to protect and exploit the Atlantic slave economies were an important indicator of change. Capital formation had been rationalized and new forms of risk avoidance and insurance developed, as Adrian Leonard has recently argued, and these were considerably more sophisticated than anything found in Asia or the Islamicate world. Hodgson made much of the distorting effect of Mercator's map projection, but if we compare Ottoman maps of the 17th and 18th century in the Topkapi Museum in Istanbul with European maps which range from Alaska to Japan, a considerable lag in scientific knowledge becomes clear. Of course, as Pierre Chenu and more recently Joanna Whaley-Cohen have argued, China continued to expand on its inner frontiers, as did the Ottoman Empire on its eastern frontier. But it's become clear that these inner expansions were fragile and that the military forces that carried them out lacked the sort of complex logistical support which European armies and navies had developed from about 1700. Finally, the ideology of northwestern European state structures presupposed a degree of control over the economy, labor, and even intellectual history not to be matched in the rest of the Afro-Eurasian world. This had developed out of religiously motivated, persecuting states into something resembling much more closely Michel Foucault's governmentality. By contrast, the great Asian and Middle Eastern states generally offlaid functions onto local linguistic and ethnic elites, whether it was the Hindu agrarian or urban commercial societies in Mughal India or the Han Chinese majority in Manchu China. When these states tried to impose economic, let alone doctrinal conformity, the result was rebellion and fragmentation, as Aurangzeb found in the Maratha lands, in the Sikh Punjab, and the Qing state was defined in the later 18th century. Hodgson acknowledged these significant developments in European state and society from time to time. He even writes a few lines on the significance of British industrialization. Yet his interpretation is constrained by his desire to emphasize the continuing vitality of the Islamicate and Asian world to the end of the 17th century. Equally, his predilection for ideal types and the unity of civilizational essences means that the history events has, of events has very little purchase in, his, uh, purchase in his argument until we reach 1789. Finally, his religious and moral understandings of history means that he's constantly forced to deny any overriding attribute of progress or rationality to the West's modernity. Technicalism, he argued, was often less rational in moral and civilizational terms than the supposedly tradition-bound societies of the old agrarian world. Thus, spiritual techniques such as yoga or Sufism were ignored in the modern West. It's obvious that Hodgson was profoundly irritated by the simple dichotomy between tradition and modernity that was characteristic of much 1960s anthropology. But his relativism and universalism could once again obscure significant historical developments. After all, psychiatry and psychoanalysis could be seen as technicalized versions of these earlier spiritual techniques. 
Freud had Hindu deities on his desk. Jung attempted to bring Eastern learning into his humanistic vision. The early 20th century Indian intellectual, Bhagavan Das, for example, was at once a late Hindu theosophist, what he called a spiritual materialist socialist and a Freudian. Freudian. It seems to me, in fact, that there need to be no contra contradiction between an argument that takes as read European dynamism and one that continues to stress internal change and cultural development within the remainder of the Oikumene. It was the very early capacity of Europe to take advantage of these extra-European developments in commerce, government and intellect, which made possible the onset of imperialism. For instance, the joint stock companies could appropriate the value added by Asian and Middle Eastern artisan production because of their command of armed shipping. Over much of Asia, European commercial entrepreneurs were dependent until the mid-19th century on the capital of indigenous merchant groups. Emerging European territorial empires could also hire the sophisticated military forces of the late gunpowder empires and employ the judges of the Sharia or the Chinese gentry administrators in their dash to gain land revenue and trade privileges. <coughs> An approach that emphasised differential economic, political and intellectual development rather than the late rise of the West would have helped Hodgson nuance his generally gloomy picture of the Asian and Muslim world in the 18th century, which he called perhaps the worst period in the whole history of Islam. Hodgson's gloom seems to arise not only from the onset of European territorial conquest in this period, but also from a sense that the universalism of Islamicate ideology was giving way to profound localism and ideological fragmentation. There's no doubt, of course, that the Ayans became increasingly independent of the Ottoman Empire, or that the late Mughal provinces fragmented the Mughal state. Yet historians in the last generation have rejected the picture of wholesale political, economic and intellectual decline during the 18th century. They've pointed, for instance, to the manner in which the Mamluk dynasty in Egypt laid some of the foundation for Mehmet Ali's later modernization of the country in the early 19th century. Recent work has noted the vitality of the Hadrami and Indo-Malayan Islam along the Straits of Malacca. In the Indian case, the new political and literary language Urdu flourished even as its poets bewailed the decline of Delhi and Agra. New centers of learning sprang up in Lucknow and Hyderabad, while the first stirrings of Muslim revival, bringing together Sufism and legalism, were evidenced in the career of Shah Valiullah of Delhi. The Deoband school, which arose from Valiullah's teaching, soon developed strong connections with reformist elements in the Middle East. Hodgson may have disliked the intolerance that he thought had characterized Arabian Wahhabism, distant precursor of the Taliban, but he certainly noted the power of the new revivalist movements as they broadened out to challenge Western modernity in its own terms. Again, even if the Qing Empire faced the first of a series of internal rebellions towards the end of the 18th century, historians, many of them at least, now Lord Chenlung's reign in the 18th century as one of the great periods of Chinese cultural efflorescence. Hodgson, of course, tended to overestimate the influence of Islam in India, Southeast Asia, and China. The neologism Islamicate was indeed useful in including areas influenced by Muslim norms of trade and government, but were predominantly not Muslim in belief. 
But the levelling religious movements of Kabir, Chaitanya and the Sikhs, for instance, drew on deep Hindu and Indic themes and were only partly responses to Islam. Hodgson also underestimated the global significance of emerging Western liberalism and contractualism from Locke through Hume to the French and Scottish Enlightenments, the history of European conscience, if you like. But his continuing emphasis on Sharia in its broader sense throughout the 18th, 19th and 20th century does raise an important issue in world history, the power of ideas in their own right. While Hodgson may have downplayed demography, economy and the role of the state throughout the latter parts of the venture, it could well be argued that more recent world historians have paid too little attention to the importance of intellectual history and political thought. Certainly, Hodgson's observation of the influence of new ideologies in the 19th and 20th century worlds is particularly acute. His treatment of Jamal al-Din al-Afghani, both in his Egyptian and his Persian, Persian context, for instance, highly revealing of his own understanding of Sharia. In this interpretation, al-Afghani was able to radicalize Islamicate ideology in an effort to oppose the now oppressive power of the West in both Egypt and Iran. In emphasizing the rigid form of the law, opposing Sufism and denouncing Western godlessness, Afghani consolidated group sentiment. But in moving away from individualistic Sharia-mindedness and Sufism towards communal radicalism, he contributed to the relative inability of Iranians to achieve satisfactory modernization. Might seem to be a conflict here. Here, Hodgson appears to have made use of the arguments of Albert Hurani's Arabic thought in the liberal age, 1962, by creatively inserting into it into his own long-term arguments about the evolution of Islam. Hodgson's own interpretation of the thought and influence of Gandhi and Iqbal is equally subtly revelatory of his own inner history of conscience. Here he anticipated the recent turn towards intellectual history in South Asian studies. This insists on reinserting the history of ideas into a field long dominated by economistic and instrumentalist understanding of politics, but at the same time distance itself from a neo-Christian or Tolstoyan interpretation of Gandhi on the one hand, or an overemphasis on the influence of European idealist thought on Iqbal and the other. In the latter case, Hodgson argues that while Iqbal deplored the tendency of Sufism to encourage political and religious quietism, and argued for the self-making power of exceptional individuals, his thought here was preponderantly drawn from Sufi writers. Throughout his own corpus of work, indeed, Hodgson sought to reconcile what he called Sharia-mindedness with Sufi insight, while insisting that the former should be guided by legalistic interpretation, but not confined within it. This raises the question of how far Hodgson's interpretation of Islam and world history could retain its force for the decade since his death in 1968. So I end with challenges to Eurocentrism. Despite the internal conflicts within Hodgson's view of world history, current events have tended to confirm his claim that historical change for most of human history has to be understood as a pattern of uneven connection, sometimes violent, across the whole Afro-Eurasian oikumene, more recently impacted on by events in the Americas. Works such as Robert Duquesne, The Uniqueness of Western Civilization, published last year, I should say, continue to appear. But their tone is much more self-aware than Eurocentric and Westernist teleologies 
of the 1940s and 50s, which Hodgson deplored. Postmodernism, the global reach of subaltern studies, histories of climate change and diaspora have eroded the European historiographical triumphalism. In a minor way, the emergence of the Arabic television station Al Jazeera has finally and decisively displaced Mercator's worldview. More soberingly, perhaps, China's recent offer to bail out the Euro Eurozone economies by buying infrastructure and its massive financial hold in the USA and Africa have evidently tipped the world away from the West. Meanwhile, Indian homegrown technicalism, if you like, has been on show in Bangalore, while Indian businessmen now figure amongst the ten richest people in the world for the first time since about 1720. Truly, Europe has once again begun to retreat to its status as a cape or promontory of Afro-Eurasia, as, as it was for Marshall G.S. Hodgson when he wrote The Venture of Islam. Thank you very much.
But Hobbes himself might say perhaps that if Islam's universality is so recalcitrant in this way, uh, it is perhaps because it is too close to uh, modern day forms of universality. And I suspect that it is this relationship, this relationship that is both too intimate and therefore too distant that Hodgson is really concerned with in this massive uh, venture of his, appropriately called the venture of Islam. Um, now, Chris Bailey points to the limitations of Hodgson's comparativist approach to world history, um, whether in his neologism such as technicalism or Sharia-mindedness, or even in more interesting formulations um, uh, that Chris didn't mention, where Hodgson, for instance, talks about how the legal individualism of Sharia, um, which disdains any corporate uh, subject of law, is placed between the corporatist uh, legalisms of India on the one hand, he's thinking about caste, of course, and Europe on the other, he's thinking about states and eventually classes and indeed corporations in the sense that they use them. It's an interesting formulation whether or not it's correct, this way of thinking, because as with everything Hobson did, he turns things around. He places Islam between India and Europe and refuses, therefore, to view uh, uh, cartography in the Mercatorian sense, if you will that is to say, proceeding from the familiar to the increasingly strange. Suddenly, India gets to be Europe's neighbor, but not Islam, which is uh, in between the two. And precisely because it's in, in between the two, it is capable of being what he calls an intermediate civilization, connecting each to the other. So I think Chris Bailey is quite correct in criticizing this comparativist approach in Hodgson. But I wonder if there's another way of reading what Chris has identified as the paradox of Hodgson and his work. Uh, because I suspect that one of the things that's really interesting but understudied about Hodgson is that he's interested in Islam's universality. His primary interest, I think, was this universality. He's interested in it beyond its geographic or rather topographic or legal legalistic forms, despite all the time and effort he spends in his, in his venture on talking about Sharia-mindedness on the one hand and the geographical expansiveness of Islam on the other. Um, and perhaps we can begin by thinking about that cliche, which is perhaps the only thing that survives, certainly in the minds of undergraduates who read on Islamicate of his work, um, which is seen as being a kind of um, uh, Islam read as a civilizational form that transcends religion or religious belief. So Jews, Christians, Hindus, Zoroastrians could all be seen as being part of Islamicate civilization. Uh, Hodgson, of course, as Chris has told us, thinks that Islam becomes a universal civilization quite late in the 16th century. Um, he thinks it becomes a universal civilization after the decline of its imperial form. He thinks it becomes a universal civilization primarily in a non-Arab way. Um, he talks about uh, Syria and eastwards, and especially the Oxus and eastwards. Uh, and in, in making this claim, of course, he's controverting uh, perhaps the normative view, uh, Orientalist view of Islam. Uh, its early glory 
uh, followed by a rapid fall, and it's all declined after that. Uh, for Hodgson, the early glory of Islam is simply uh, its pre-universal aspect. It becomes a universal civilization in this non-religious sense uh, only from the 16th century, and only by abandoning uh, or fragmenting its political role uh, and its as from Mediterranean or Arab role. And in doing this, in, in making the statement, of course, Hodgson is doing something like what I described him as doing when he placed Islam between India and Europe. He turns the geography around, uh, he turns the temporality around, uh, and he makes Islam's universality dependent, dependent upon its dissemination and fragmentation. Uh, it's no longer a political entity, uh, though it possesses a politics. Um, he refuses to place this universality in the Mediterranean. He's not like Rodel in this sense. So the Mediterranean, this classic contact zone between Islam and Christianity and Judaism, or between the East and the West, um, uh, leaves Hansen cold. He moves further east, very, very interestingly. Um, and he uses for this universality uh, a term which I think is very important, in fact. He calls it hemispheric. Uh, remember that Hodgson is writing in the 1950s and he's active in the 1950s and 60s, the height of the Cold War, when the word hemisphere has a very particular meaning or a set of meanings. Um, it also has a history going back, of course, to the Monroe Doctrine, a new world history. Uh, and what the Monroe Doctrine does is to separate power from cartography, uh, or rather topography, uh, because the hemisphere has no topography. It goes through the rhythm of oceans. It is not, in that sense, a geographical entity. It is a complete abstraction. It's one half of the globe. And it, you, you could cut the globe in any way, from any direction, in, in order to get a hemisphere. Um, in, in suggesting that Islam was the first um, hemispheric civilization, therefore, I think that uh, what Hudson was doing was um, showing how this universality was not only delinked from territory in this particular sense, from political unity, from the contact zone of the Mediterranean, from the Arab world, uh, from the unity of any conventional kind, but also, therefore, linking it to universality as a properly modern form, completely abstract. Uh, because he sees Islam's universality going to decline after its apogee in the 16th century, at the very same time that the universality of the West, in an equally abstract hemispheric mode, uh, emerges uh, with the discovery and colonization of the Americas. So one of the things I'd like to suggest is that for Hudson, um, uh, Islam provides a kind of precedent, a genealogical precedent, for the modernity of the West itself. And what gets erased is not just the Mediterranean as a contact zone, but Europe itself. This is, in other words, a very American enterprise. Uh, because the West, of course, in this formulation, has moved well beyond Europe. It takes the Americas to make the West a deterritorialized entity, a hemispheric one, uh, one that might plunder from Europe's wealth, but that can never again be defined by Europe. Europe, in a way, has gone. 
And I wonder if, hearing what Chris said about the University of Chicago as a Germanic university, uh, so many of whose faculty members were refugees uh, from two world wars, uh, whether the decline of Europe as a theme, and therefore its memorialization at a place like the University of Chicago, uh, can be read in Hudson as well. Because he does, I think, quite explicitly um, erase uh, Europe uh, and make these two universalities, the two hemispheric universalities, Islam on the one hand in its late post-imperial non-Arab form and the West in its non-European form into uh, two great subjects or objects of contemplation. Uh, a contemplation which of course is only possible from a place in the New World in Hudson's uh, own day. So, so much for the sort of topographical dimension uh, of, or, or rather Hodgson's way of moving beyond it in his work. How about the legalistic one, the other category that, that I spoke about? Uh, it's important perhaps to remember that Hodgson's first book and his only monograph, you know, the, the Venture of Islam, three volumes of the Venture of Islam were written as textbooks. But his only monograph is called The Order of Assassins, and it's on the reverse of Sharia-mindedness, orthodoxy, majoritarian Islam. Because the Order of Assassins is about a sectarian group, uh, an extreme heresy, if you will, which is an esoteric group. Uh, the fact that they are called the Assassins also suggests that this esoteric group um, is not, its esotericism is not devoid of politics. It's a form of thinking about polity in a way that, for which law, geography, etc., is no longer that important. Uh, and I'm wondering whether, just as, uh, just as Hodgson in his own work writes about Muhammad Iqbal in Chris's telling, that here is Iqbal, this great philosopher of the, of the Muslim 20th century, who seems to want to criticize Sufism who, who thinks about the law a great deal, and yet whose language is entirely Sufi in provenance. Uh, that there is a kind of esotericism in someone like Iqbal that is mirrored uh, in Hodgson himself. And even Hodgson, in my view, appropriates a lot from Iqbal without acknowledging him, um, uh, though he, he, he also acknowledges him fulsomely for some things in the third volume of the um, Venture of Islam. And I think this. The esoteric dimension of Hodgson, remember, here he is, heading up the Committee of Social Thought at the University of Chicago. His colleague is no less a person than Leo Strauss. Um, uh, he, this is the University of Chicago for which politics, the danger of politics, and the importance, therefore, of the esoteric is crucial, uh, not least in its Cold War context. Um, I think it's interesting to speculate in the absence of any credible proof at the moment, whether Hodgson's own interest in the esoteric as a hidden knowledge, which he talks about in Iqbal, but which his own work, I think, serves as illustration, is that you know, it might be a productive way of thinking not only about his work, but about his concerns, uh, concerns that uh, have become, as Chris uh, tells, told us in his lecture, relevant again for us today.
Um, indeed, Hodgson, after spending pages and pages on Sharia mindedness and bewailing um, the decline of Islam in that aspect of its being, uh, ends the venture of Islam, if it, indeed it was him who ended it, since we know that the last volume was written out of his notes, with Persian poetry. Um, it's an interesting ending. Uh, and I'll quote his ending. I think these, these are in fact the last sentences of the venture of Islam. It is possible that eventually Islam, like Christianity already in some circles, will prove to have its most creative thrust by way of the great secular literature in which its challenge has been embedded, and will move amongst its heirs like a secret leaven, secret is in the literature, long after they have forgotten they, once, they were once Muslims. Persian poetry will not die so soon as the disquisitions of fiqh or kalam, of jurisprudence. And, and dialectical theology. And Persian poetry may eventually prove to be as potent everywhere as among those who use language touched by the Persian spirit and so by Islam. I think in ending, um, I'd like to suggest that for Hodgson, having set up the universality of Islam in its post-imperial and late and non-Arab phase as a precursor for the West's universality as a deterritorialized entity. Uh, for Hodgson, the problem posed by the emergence of these two forms of universality, one in decline and the other ascendant, was how does one make oneself at home in, in this completely abstract universe? The word that he uses, civilization, should not, I think, be seen in its 18th century sense. It's actually more akin to what someone like Gandhi define civilization as. There was only one, or rather only two. There was the defunct, the traditional civilization, and modern civilization, civilization seen as a completely universal and abstract form. Like Gandhi in some ways, the problem of how to make oneself at home in this abstract universe was what led, I think, Hodgson to think about positing a genealogy for the abstraction that was modernity with all its violences of kind that Chris has laid out. Colonialism, the Second World War, its genocides, and its atom bombs. Um, and he seemed to have thought that only by returning or reimagining their points of origin and constructing for this uh, global modernity, if you will, because he's interested in thinking about the hemisphere of the globe rather than world history of conventional sense, um, that one might be able to live with it. Um, and it was Persian poetry, oddly or not so oddly, uh, that turned out to be, for him, the best way of living with the modern.